there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. I'm your host, Brian Jewell, feeling flattered that you would spend some time with us on this Valentine's Day. And of course, as always, our promise to you is that we're going to do everything we can to make that investment of your time worth your while. And today, I'm going to bring you a featured conversation with somebody I find fascinating from a company I find fascinating. We're going to talk to Kelsey Perry of Road Scholar and learn all about how her nonprofit organization is helping tens of thousands of people a year continue their education, keep sharp, sharpen their mental health and their mental well-being all through the amazing adventure of group travel. You're going to hear tons of inspiring insights and ideas in that interview. I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we get there, though, let's start with some travel news you may have missed. Hawaii is considering a new fee for use of its natural areas. The Hawaii legislature is considering a bill that would mandate visitors pay a so-called green fee in order to access public beaches, parks, trails, and other natural areas. The text of the bill says that, quote, establishing a visitor impact fee of $50 in Hawaii would be a significant and effective way to raise additional revenue, to offset visitor impacts, and ensure a healthy environment for future generations. Now, under the proposal, the $50 per person payment would be good for a one-year license to enter various natural areas around the state, Anyone entering those areas without a license would be subject to a fine. Supporters of the bill say that tourists cause the majority of adverse impacts to the state's natural areas and that the green fee would allow the state to better fund land and water protection plans and stewardship projects. Opponents worry that the new fee would deter some travelers from visiting Hawaii. If the bill passes, it will go into effect in July of 2025. Well, now it's time for the road tip segment of our show. This is the part of every episode where we reach deep into our bag of travel experience and bring you tips and hints and ideas that will help make your next trip less stressful and more successful. Now, I have been traveling professionally for about 20 years now, and uh, most of my work during that time on the road has been as a travel journalist, which means I am always, always, always traveling with a notebook and a pen. And of course, the lion's share of what I do with the notebook and pen is take notes, gather uh, facts and data and quotes that will show up in uh, the articles I'm writing for the group travel leader and our other travel magazines. But I've got to tell you that pen and notebook has come in handy more times than I can count for other things as well. And I think it would be really helpful for you to get in the habit of traveling with a pen and a notebook somewhere in your backpack, your purse, your carry-on, somewhere easy to reach it. Now, you may be thinking, you know what, Brian, I don't use pen and paper hardly anywhere. My life is digital. I store things on my laptop or on my tablet. I take notes on my phone. And you know what? I do too, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there have been times over and over again on the road when I needed to quickly write something down or I needed to have access to something that I could glance at uh, in a flash on the go, maybe in a motor coach, And a paper notebook is just so much easier to deal with in those specific circumstances. Let me give you some examples. Notebooks are great for jotting down phone numbers or directions. You know, if you travel long enough, uh, you will find yourself in a situation where something unexpected comes up on the road and you need to get directions or an address or a phone number of a place where you are going or somebody you need to contact And that's much easier to write down in a notebook, especially if you're using your phone to make the phone call where you're gathering that information. Having a a pen handy and a piece of paper to write on is certainly much easier than uh, frantically looking around to everybody with you and motioning with your hand to communicate that you need a piece of paper. If you've already got one in your notebook, you are all set to go. Uh, Pen and paper can also be great if you are mapping out seating assignments on a motor coach. Now, I know different people have different thoughts about assigned seating, but if you like assigned seating, if your group benefits from assigned seating, or let's face it, if your group fights about 
the prime seats, uh, it can be really beneficial to have some paper with you so that you can map out a seating plan for the day and show it to people or even write little name tags uh, and put them above the motor coach seats. Having a pen and a notebook is awfully handy if you have to gather lunch orders while you're on the road. I've seen this dozens and dozens of times over various trips where the person in charge has to walk down the aisle of the motor coach, ask everybody what they want for lunch or dinner, wherever they are stopping next so that the kitchen can get started on the order. That's a lot easier to do with a pen and paper than it is to try to type it on your phone. And finally, uh, I find a pen especially helpful if you want to write notes for your driver and guide tips. Now, if you are uh, interested in tipping your driver and guide, you might also want to pack envelopes with you too. Sometimes it's hard to get your hands on envelopes on the road. And so you can distribute those to to, uh, your travelers if they are interested in individually tipping or what I think is the better plan, frankly, is to just gather the tips yourself or even better than that would be to just build them into the cost of the tour. But whatever way you go about it, having that pen and that envelope on hand makes it easy to uh, write a nice note uh, of thanks to your guide and driver and uh, slip them that envelope discreetly in a way that isn't awkward. Of course, there are many, many other ways that a pen and a notebook can save your tail on the road. These are just a few examples. And the great thing about them, they're not heavy. They're not hard to pack. Throw them in your travel bag once and they'll probably last for years and years. And I promise they're going to get you out of some jams. And that is your road tip of the week. Now, before we go on, I want to share a little bit of news from us. You know, our team attends all kinds of conferences and travel events around the country every year. And right now we are getting ready for what might be one of our very favorite events. That is the Southeast Tourism Society's Domestic Showcase, which is going to take place March 20 through 23rd in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, this is a great event for uh, you to meet with tour operators, destination reps, other travel pros throughout the Southeast. But it's also a great opportunity for you to meet our team because a bunch of us are going to be there and we would love to meet you. Of course, you can meet our sales team, Kyle and Bryce. They're a lot of fun. They're going to be on the floor of the conference the whole time. Those are two guys you definitely want to know. You can also meet our staff writer, Rachel Crick, who will be there taking media appointments. Uh, Our founder and publisher, Mac Lacey, will be there uh, for a day or two. And if you know Mac, you will enjoy catching up with him. And uh, last but not least, I will be there as well and would love to meet you. Now, in addition to uh, the great appointments and getting to hang out with our team, uh, you are going to get to enjoy some really special features that we are thrilled to partner with STS to bring to you. I'm going to be doing a brand new keynote presentation on the first day of the conference. So if you attend, you can hear my keynote. It's called Untapped Travel's Hidden Power to Solve People's Deepest Problems. I am super excited about this presentation. Been working on it for weeks now. I can't wait to share it with you. And you can attend our exclusive After Hours party. Uh, That is going to feature live music, great drinks, some snacks, and I don't know, a hundred or so of your favorite people in tourism. It is the highlight of our year every year. We would love for you to be there. So if you have already made plans to be at Domestic Showcase, go ahead and make sure you're registered for that event and put that first morning breakfast on your calendar so that you don't miss that keynote. If you're not already registered, Go to southeasttourism.org, find more information about the event, learn how you can register. We would love to see you there. Now, it's just about time for us to get into our interview with Kelsey Perry. And you know, one of the things I try to do every now and then is to bring on a guest who can give you some ideas about things you may not have thought about uh, that could present some really cool opportunities for you your travelers, your travel organization. And that's what Kelsey is here to talk with us about today. Uh, You're going to hear all about educational travel and how her organization has been doing that for a long time. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, education's not really my jam. 
But I promise if you will listen, you're going to hear some cool ideas you haven't thought about before. You might get some inspiration for some ways that you can integrate some of these ideas or principles or concepts into the kinds of trips that you and your travelers do like. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Kelsey. Uh, Also, just keep in mind, you don't need to worry about taking notes because I am taking notes for you. That's right. I will put a wrap up of uh, most of the key things that Kelsey and I talked about in the show notes. uh, And you can find show notes wherever you are listening to this podcast right below the media player. And uh, I'm going to come back as well at the end of the interview with a few wrap up thoughts. And uh, after all that, I am going to take a minute to share some more of my thoughts about the idea of green fees and whether or not it's a good idea for tourism destinations to start extracting more tax and fee revenue from travelers. That's going to be today's hot minute. You won't want to miss that. We'll be right back with Kelsey Perry. All right, everybody. My guest today is a longtime tourism and hospitality professional. After a study abroad opportunity in college opened her eyes to the wonders of the world, she tapped her training as a creative writer to pursue a career in marketing and sales for a variety of travel organizations. Today, she's the public relations director for Road Scholar, a nonprofit that takes lifelong learners on educational trips around the globe. Kelsey Perry, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. I am so excited to have you here. Uh, Road Scholar is an organization that's been on my radar for a long time because my grandfather actually did your trips back in the 90s, and I remember him uh, raving about them uh, back then. So I'm very excited to kind of introduce uh, our audience to this concept of educational travel and lifelong learning and how those things go together. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more of your story about how you got involved in educational travel. Yeah. Well, um, I, as you said in my intro, I studied abroad in Ireland. So that really opened my eyes to travel, global travel. I hadn't traveled much as a kid. So that really ignited my passion for travel. And then I um, studied writing in undergrad and then got my MFA in creative writing. I worked um, for a wedding planner as a water park sales manager. Um, I did some social media for a local tourism board. So kind of all of those were like a little bit related. And then I moved to Boston after I finished my MFA and uh, found this job through a friend of a friend at a bike tour company. And I honestly didn't know that travel was even an industry I could have a career in because at that point, you know, I was in college. I did all of my own travel planning on the internet and I kind of just thought, Oh, everyone just does their own, you know, books their own flights online, does everything by themselves. But, you know, obviously that first job really opened my eyes to the fact that there are a lot of people that either don't want to do the travel planning or just really prefer to rely on the expertise of people who know what they're doing. So that was my first. I was um, basically, a, I was a tour coordinator. So I was basically a travel agent booking things for um, people before and after their bike tours and handling all of the details of their bike sizes and jersey sizes and all that kind of stuff. And then there was a role that opened in the marketing position um, to do content marketing. And I also was at this perfect time where content marketing was becoming a thing. It was now, Mm -hmm. now students are like majoring in or in it or taking classes in it. But at the time when I was graduating, it was really a whole new field and opportunity, a great opportunity for, for a writer. So um, I took that job doing content marketing at uh, the bike tour company. And then I found this role at, at Road Scholar which was perfect because, you know, I am a writer. So combined writing, travel and learning. Um, I've always loved school. I've always loved learning. I not to toot my own horn was valedictorian in high school. So I really <laughs> I've just like always loved school. My husband thinks I'm crazy, but I, if I could just be a student professionally, I would if I could just be learning all the time. So um, this job at Road Scholar really just combined all my passions perfectly. I love that. And and what a great uh, way to keep learning. You know, I, that's something I love about travel as well is uh, I don't think I ever really go anywhere where I'm not exposed to something I didn't know about, some kind of fascinating story, an element of history that I just completely missed in school or something super cool in the sciences or the arts. So 
uh, it's a it's a great way to kind of keep scratching that itch, uh, which is so important in really having a fulfilling life. I mean, there's there's tons of uh, academic evidence out there, you know, data and studies showing that um, staying engaged mentally is great for your health. It's great for uh, your mental health. It's great for you know staying sharp as you age. Uh, so tell us, you did a lot of traditional tourism things. What was different about educational travel when you came over to Road Scholar? Uh, or what was the same that maybe surprised you that it was the same? I would say that, uh, well, when you travel with Road Scholar, you are there to learn. So you're not going to be sitting on a beach all day, sipping margaritas and reading a book. You're not going to be doing a lot of shopping. So our programs really are designed to immerse you in the history and the culture of the place that you're visiting. Um, you're not just looking at the pretty places, the pretty architecture, but you're really learning the history behind them. Um, whether it's a historic building or a rock formation, you're learning about the history. So you can expect experiential learning on our programs through cooking classes, museum visits, you know, a demonstration on a lobster boat. There's all different mm. types of learning that you can do, but it's all really experiential. Along with, we also have some traditional classroom lectures on the programs as well. But it's really about learning from the experts in their field, whether that's an academic scholar or an organic farmer. Some some people are more traditionally like the classroom professors, and then you're also going out into the field and learning in person. So um, I would say that's really the difference is there's more of an academic, um, an, an academic twist on things to make it really more all about the learning. Yeah. So uh, do you mix disciplines on the same tour or, you know, will one tour focus almost exclusively on history and another one almost exclusively on art, let's say? Yeah, it kind of depends. Um, we have thousands of programs. So you can go to our website and there's a find an adventure tool where you can filter by what you want to learn about, where you want to learn, um, your price range, all different things. So some pr programs are very specific to the topic. Like we have bridge programs where you're learning how to play bridge. Obviously, that's going to wow. be really focused on bridge. Um, but then yeah. you might go, you know, there might be a program. We have a, George, a new program in the country of Georgia um, that has a lot of wine and food elements, but obviously you're going to be learning a lot about the culture and the history there as well. Um, pretty much all of our international programs are really focused on history and culture, as well as some other topics that you'll learn about. Um, and then more of the domestic programs is where you're going to get the very, you know, specific bridge or um, pickleball or um, very science focused ones. Uh, and then we have a lot of outdoor programs as well that um, you're hiking or you're biking and you're also learning about the natural history and the geology of the area that you're that you're visiting as well. Yeah, you know, I love uh, that you're mentioning some activities that sound objectively fun, right? Pickleball, uh, you know, some people love playing bridge, some people love hiking. So uh, talk to uh, the maybe the, the misconception that a learning tour, an educational tour uh, isn't or shouldn't have those fun elements. What's the what's the reality like in terms of, you know, how much you're doing sort of academic stuff versus how much is that interactive, uh, engaging activity? Well, I would think all of our participants would argue that learning is fun. So all of the learning <laughs> is fun on the programs. Uh, but yeah, I would say, you know, we most of our programs do have some classroom learning. You're you're learning from a lecture. But the great part that makes it fun is then taking what you've learned, going out into the field and seeing that history in person and actually getting to touch and feel and smell and interact with that history um, in the places where it happens. So that's what makes it really fun, I think. Um, and we also incorporate, like I said, Said, lots of immersive learning, like cooking classes um, or hiking in national parks. So, you know, you might have a morning lecture in the hotel conference room, but then you're going out to really see the history in person. Yeah, uh, that sounds great. So uh, some people are listening to us right now saying, this sounds amazing. There might be some who are saying, uh, maybe not the thing for me, and that's totally okay. But I'm interested uh, what kind of trends you guys notice in terms of of demographics or psychographics, what um, what kind of people are coming on these trips? Uh, is there a, a certain background or a value set or something that they all have in common? Yeah, and I will agree that Road Scholar is not for every single traveler, and and you know that's fair because we want to attract the right people who are going to enjoy our programs and that our programs are the right fit for. So we serve eighty to one hundred thousand travelers a year from all over the country. Um, our programs are targeted for over people over fifty. Um, so that's that's first of all, you know, 
narrows us down a little bit. The average age of our customer is 72, but that really is an average because we serve people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And a person in their 50s and a person in their 90s are very two very different people. So, um, right. and then also 70% of our women of our travelers are women, and 30% of our travelers go solo every year. And if you can follow, 85% of our solo travelers are women. So we have a lot of solo female travelers that that come with us. Um, and actually, we just did a study recently that 60% of our, at least 60% of our of our solo travelers are married folks who leave their spouses at home to go travel, which is really interesting. So there's these married couples. One of them is more adventurous. The other one doesn't want to travel. So they leave them at home. They come travel with Road Scholar, which I think is so interesting. So I would say the what our participant looks like is someone who is very independent, obviously, who loves to explore and learn about the world. And it, again, just really comes down to that learning uh, because, like I said, you're not going to be sitting on a beach reading a book or going shopping. So we attract people who are here to learn. And what that does is it really creates this immediate sense of camaraderie on our programs that is just ripe for creating friendships. And so the social interactions on our programs where all these people are coming together is something that's really important to the Road Scholar experience as well. And also, I will say that a disproportionate percentage of our participants are retired educators because of our educational focus. So we get lots of retired teachers who, again, just creates that immediate sense of camaraderie and connection. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Now, I want to talk more uh, in a bit about, you know, the details of what educational travel looks like. But since you mentioned uh, this uh, phenomenon of uh, women traveling solo, even married women, you know, saying bye to their husbands for a week or two to travel with you. Um, do you guys know anymore? Or do you have any even sort of um, anecdotal evidence of what is driving that trend among your customers? Yeah, well, I we did we did a little study on it, so I know a little bit. We we did survey those who travel solo with us without their spouse, <clears throat> and what they told us is that the number one reason is because their spouse just simply isn't interested in traveling which is crazy to me. And it's mostly women and their husbands staying at home. So, you know, what's going on with these guys? Uh, I think part <laughs> of it, part of it is we do do group travel. And I think that women are naturally more social. So I think that might be part of it. Um, also because of our educational focus and the fact that we have more retired educators who typically are women that might play into it. But I don't think it's just exclusive to Road Scholar. I think that's across right. any other travel uh, organization for older adults and also other ages as well. So um, I think, you know, I, I hate to generalize about about gender roles or anything, but I, I don't know. I guess women are just a little more um, a little more adventurous and willing to get out there and push their push themselves out of their comfort zone and go travel the world. But I do think that this for us is really a mark of the demographic that we are serving right now because two thirds of our participants are baby boomers at this point. And I just think it's such a mark of their generation that um, not only are they very independent and um, adventurous, but we're kind of at this point in time with society where women are sort of allowed to be able to travel on their own and leave their husbands at home. I think that the boomers' parents you know, it was much more unheard of for women to travel and leave their husbands at home. So we're kind of at a point where women are, quote unquote, allowed to be doing this. And the baby boomers are just this this generation of very adventurous, um, progressive, independent women. And so for us, that's I think that's why we're seeing a lot of that um, that trend happen. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think you're right. It's not just your organization I even think back to um, when I was in college, much like you, I did a, a study abroad program. And when I met the other group of students at the airport, uh, it was, you know, three females for every male in the mm -hmm. group on, on this semester to Mexico. And I actually asked the program organizer, I said, is, is this normal? I was a little concerned, you know, like, am I going to have guys to hang out with? And I asked him about it. And he said, you know what, this happens every year. And I honestly don't know why. So uh, who knows what's behind that? Maybe there are uh, some some deeper things in human psychology at play here. Uh, I'm interested in uh, finding out more about how you do education for adults and how it might be different than what people remember from being a child, a student uh, in an educational setting. Uh, a lot of our listeners are familiar with uh, student tours. They might operate student tours. And so they have a paradigm for how you do educational tours for 
middle schoolers or senior trips or, or college trips or something like that. So uh, how do you do this in a way that makes adults feel like adults and also makes them feel like they're getting a lot of value for their expectations? I would say, you know, when I first applied to work at Road Scholar, I also thought it was for younger students when I just read the job description before I started researching the organization, um, because we do. We think of educational travel more for younger students, which is just our own biases. And, you know, that's something that I've really completely changed my perspective on aging um, from working at Road Scholar. Um, but I would say that, you know... I was just talking to somebody who leads our programs and they said that they really love presenting to Rhodes Scholars versus their younger students because all of the Rhodes Scholars are there, again, to learn. And of mm. course, you get with younger students, they're there to learn, but it's not always their primary motivation. Maybe they're taking a class because they need to get the credits to graduate or to like further their career. Maybe they're a little more focused on the social elements of the trip, things like that. So that's, you know, what we hear from our instructors. It's that they just love presenting to our participants because they're so inquisitive and so engaged and they ask the best questions. So I think that's something that's a little bit different about it um, for adults. But in terms of how we design the content, I think that it really is much of the same of, as what we would offer to younger students. It's just kind of offered and presented through a different lens um, because our participants really bring lifetimes of knowledge and lived experience. Um, so, for example, we have a civil rights program in Alabama. And our participants lived through the civil rights era. They might they might have all participated in it on different levels or have just different perspectives based on, you know, their age or where they're from. But we we will tell that history to them differently than we would if we had young high school students coming through, for example. So yeah. um, and then, of course, we also have programs on topics that you wouldn't likely see for young students like bridge and pickleball and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so we do have some programs that are kind of different than what you might see for younger students. But I, like I said, I think that the, the vibe is different on the programs, but I don't know that the content is wildly different than what we would offer, you know, if we were serving younger students. Yeah. Do you ever have issues keeping your programs on time because your participants just want to keep asking questions of their guides or instructors. Oh, that's a really good question. I would say in general, um, I our participants are very punctual as far as getting to the bus on time in the morning and things like that. I hadn't really thought of it as far as like having to ask too many questions. I think we just know that about our participants and we make sure we leave enough time for question and answer at the end of every session. So yeah, we've learned yeah, that. I got it. <laughs> I got to imagine that is uh, a longer Q&A portion than, you know, a, a typical, you know, guided city tour probably has to allow time for. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's great. So you, you said you um, mostly focus on the 50 plus age range. Uh, but you told me a while ago when we talked, uh, you're actually uh, also doing some multi-generational groups. So I'm curious um, what the impetus is behind that and how that's shaping up, what it looks like. Yeah, we've been offering our grandparent program since 1985. So they've been around for a while. It's a really unique offering that most travel organizations do not offer. Um, so we have the grandparent and the grandchild programs, which is sometimes called skip gen in the industry. So grandparents and grandkids um, together. And then we also have our family programs for three generations. Um, so you can go to our website and search by the age of your grandchild to see which programs would be the right fit for them. And we have programs for five-year-olds up to 18. So um, we have a big range. We have programs in the Grand Canyon that are more active. We have uh, Costa Rica, Paris, all over the country, all over the world. And this is really where that balance of learning and fun is super important. <laughs> you kind yeah. of have to hide the learning and the fun for the kids. Um, and so, again, very hands-on, interactive programs, lots of um, physical activities. And they're just a really wonderful way for grandparents and their grandkids to get to know each other individually as people without the parents there. Um, and for the grandparents to pass on their love of learning, their love of travel, their love of a certain topic, if they're on a specific program um, that has a specific topic and just really make memories that they're going to have forever. I, I, when I first started working at Road Scholar, I thought the grandparent programs were just the coolest. I grew up with like 15 cousins on each side of my family. I loved my grandparents, but I did not have a super close relationship with them one-on-one -on -one. and something like this. I just can't even imagine how special that would have been. So uh, we hear amazing stories about these 
Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, now, so you've got grandparents who are lifelong learners, who love learning. They want to introduce uh, their grandkids uh, to that same love of learning. How do you make sure that both generations, or in the cases of all three generations, how do you make sure everybody there is having an enriching educational experience that uh, hits them at the right uh, age and intellectual level all in one trip? Yeah, well, we work with experts who are experts at um, not only their topic, but also, you know, educating children as well. Um, Occasionally, we will split them up into groups. But for the most part, the point is for them to be there learning together. So I think a lot of it is focused a little more on the children because we want the grandparents to be experiencing that learning through their grandchildren and, you know, sort of seeing the magic in their eye, in their eyes as the grandchildren learn certain new things. Um, but it's also really about pushing the grandparents out of their comfort zone sometimes to go zip lining or to go whitewater mm. rafting. And so that's where the grandparents do some stretching of their minds and their abilities um, to really learn a lot about themselves too. Um, and you know, we also have our programs broken down by age range. So even though we have programs for five-year-olds to 18-year-olds, you won't necessarily see five-year-olds and 18-year-olds on the same programs. So again, you can go to our websites, filter by the age of your grandchild, and it will show you every single program will say right at the top what the age range is. So we try to keep the age ranges pretty tight so that the kids are, um, you know, somewhat within the same learning, learning levels. Now, um, I imagine that you do get some people uh, that come on your trips as companions uh, for the person who really has that learning interest. You know, maybe maybe it's the woman that does convince her husband to come, even though it wasn't his first choice. I'm interested when you get feedback from those people that came primarily as companions, what do they have to say? How do they react after experiencing something like this for themselves? First, I have to say great questions that you've prepared because these are questions I don't usually get. So I love it. Well, for this one, I can really speak from my own experience because I recently brought my mom on her first Road Scholar program and um, educational travel is not something that she would have necessarily been drawn to if, if I didn't work at Road Scholar. But she really loved it. Um, and she's already enrolled in another program next year without me to Portugal, which is really amazing. And yeah. um, I would say that, you know, there were definitely some lectures and certain museum visits that she wasn't necessarily nuts about and that she wouldn't have um, gone to if it wasn't for the program itinerary. But I think she got something out of everything. And uh, it, again, it's a lot of it is about pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And she learned things that she wouldn't have learned otherwise. Um, so and then we also you always have free time on the program. So my mom got to get a little shopping in as well. And um, participants always have the option to opt out of certain activities or lectures if it's not something they're interested in. So sometimes we do see um, spouses, you know, split up. We also have choose your pace programs um, for our physical activity programs for our outdoor Um, hiking programs. So if you have a a couple who, you know, one person is a little bit more of an active hiker, one is a little less, those are great because spouses can come together. They can split up during the day in different groups and then kind of come back together for the group activities. So um, there's lots of opportunities for um, people to break off from the group if they're not super interested. But I do think that most people get something out of everything once they're on the program. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Now, um, you have mentioned twice now the idea of getting out of your comfort zone, maybe being pushed a little bit or challenged a little bit by an activity or an idea. Can you help us sort of unpack what the value of that is on travel? Because I think a lot of people instinctually might say, well, do I want to be challenged on vacation or do I want to be comfortable the whole time? Because the, the vacation paradigm is to you know, maximize your comfort the whole time. So what what is the value? Why should people seek out those opportunities to be intentionally pushed intellectually or in a you know bravery activity, something like that, intentionally pushed beyond what they're comfortable with? Well, one thing I will say is that when you travel with Road Scholar, you have all of the trip details taken care of for you. So that you don't have that stress of having to figure out where you're going to eat dinner or what time you're going to catch the train. All of those things are taken care of for you. So you take that element out of having to worry about. And so if you still want to be engaged educational travel is perfect for that because it pushes you and it keeps you inspired and and engaged the whole time. So, um, you know, and, and when you're, when you're aging, 
learning and putting yourself out of, out of your comfort zone is so important to keep yourself mm-hmm. sharp, to keep yourself aging healthily, healthily, if that's yeah. a word, and also just keeping keeping yourself, you know, vital and engaged as you as you get older. So um, so it's it's really important to keep doing that. And I think, again, that kind of goes back to what our baby boomers are doing. They're not the kind of generation that's interested in sitting in on rocking chairs on their front porch. They want to get out there and keep moving and keep learning. And that is why they're so vital still. You know, so many of them are not retired yet. They still want to work. And those who are retired are looking for opportunities like this to travel and learn to just keep themselves young. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, one thing that is uh, unique about your organization is that it's a nonprofit. Uh, and so I'm interested, you've, you have worked in for-profit tourism. Now you're with a nonprofit. How does that uh, nonprofit status and, and mindset and mission uh, affect the way you operate, affect the kinds of experiences people have? Does it affect the pricing of the programs? How, how is it different than uh, you know, a traditional for-profit tour company? Yeah, well, it really comes down to our mission. Our mission is education. It's all about learning. So that's what our programs are focused on. Whenever we're trying to make business decisions, we kind of go back to that mission and think, does this serve our mission? So um, and also because we're a nonprofit, we offer scholarships and grants. We offer um, caregiver grants for full time family caregivers, which are really unique and different. So that's part of the nonprofit thing as well. But as you mentioned, it does affect the price of our programs. The value is really what it comes down to. Uh, it's really unmatched compared to commercial tour operators. So you might see those 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 uh, price tags on our on our programs and think, well, that's that's a lot. But when you really break down what you're getting for that price, it's just really you're getting a bigger bang for your buck compared to commercial tour operators because we're not building in um, big profit margins. And so every any kind of discounts or whatever we're getting, we're passing on to the participants. So when you travel with Road Scholar, you know, you're getting really what you pay for. Yeah. Tell us more about uh, that caregiver scholarship program. Who are you uh, targeting with that? And, and what is the importance of helping those people to be able to participate in something like this? Oh, wow. This is where we get some of the most inspirational stories when we hear about our caregivers who travel with us. So we offer the caregiver grants and you can apply for them online. There are certain qualifications you need to be eligible for them, Um, but they are for for full-time family caregivers, people who are you know, giving care for their children or for their siblings or their parents or their spouse. And it's really designed to provide respite for the caregiver so that they can have a break from the care, their caregiving and focus on themselves and take themselves, you know, out of that, those caregiving responsibilities and have a break. Um, so it does not actually cover the cost of, they still then have to find somebody to fill in for them um, while they're sure. gone, but it, it, it fills in that cost of going on the program. And um, also, so what we what we see, unfortunately, often is they'll receive their grant and then um, either wait to travel or wait to apply until after their their loved one has passed away so that they don't have that extra piece of trying to fill in the care while mm-hmm. they're gone. But um, and for those people, it can really be just kind of that first page in the new chapter of their lives and, and just kind of learning more about themselves and figuring out where they're going to go from there. So um, they're really amazing stories, like I said, that we hear from these caregivers. And um, I think it's a it's an amazing program that we have. It's so important because so many people, especially, you know, with the baby boom coming, there's so many of us who are a caregiver or will be a caregiver. And it's really an overlooked uh, piece of society. And they're just, you know, not appreciated enough. So yeah, absolutely. You're 100% right. You know, the, the age range that you and I are in, this is not something we think about every day. But, you know, chances are, uh, before it's all over, we're either going to be caregivers or need caregivers uh, at one point in life or another. So that's that's a massively uh, inspiring thing you all do. Uh, now, if somebody says, hey, I've got a group of 10 or 15 or 20 friends that would love to do this sort of thing, is it possible for them to work with you guys on a group basis or maybe even have a, a departure or a program that is specific private for their group? What does that look like? We do do private departures. So we would take one of our programs that exist already and find a date that works for your group. 
Um, you do need, I believe it's 18 to 20 people in order to reserve one date just for your group. But if you have a smaller number of 10 people, we can reserve, you know, 10 spots on an existing program for you as well. Um, and then we do have incentives if you have 18 to 20 people or more that you can, you know, get a free spot or we do also give backs. If you're part of an organization, we'll give 5% back to the organization that you, um, if you get a certain number of people. So you can check out, you know, if you go to roadscholar.org slash groups, or you can email us at groups at roadscholar.org and we'll figure out the best fit for you. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Kelsey, I could keep you all day talking about this stuff. I know you've got uh, other things to do. Um, where is the best place for people to learn more about Road Scholar or to follow you uh, and uh, keep in touch? Yeah, so you can head over to roadscholar.org. Now it's R-O-A-D scholar.org. Don't forget it's not, we get our name gets mixed up with Rhodes Scholar a lot. So yeah. head over to R-O-A-D scholar.org and uh, check out the search tool. Like I said, that's a great way to filter all, we have thousands of programs. So filter our programs to find the right one for you. You can also browse collections um, at the top of the page as well. Um, I would also check us out on Facebook. Um, search for Road Scholar on Facebook. We also have some amazing Facebook groups um, that are a great way to just kind of get a little taste for Road Scholar, inter interact with the other participants. People share pictures from their programs there um, and ask for advice and share tips and stuff like that. So especially we have um, Women of Road Scholar Facebook group that's over 20,000 members now and is really active. So I would recommend checking checking those things out. Yeah, absolutely. We will link to all those in the show notes. So before we let you go, we have uh, some questions we ask everybody, and these are just for fun. So you can answer off the top of your head, no pressure. Uh, when you are booking travel, do you book a window seat or an aisle seat? Window. Yeah. You just like the view? Uh, I like to sleep. I am almost always sleeping before we leave the tarmac. So I need to have something to lean against. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am envious. That is a superpower I wish I had. It really is. <laughs> so what's one thing in your carry-on that you wouldn't travel without? Um, I guess earbuds because I do like to kind of put on a podcast or music. Um, and obviously my phone, you know, I couldn't, nobody can live without their phone while they're traveling. So. I mean, I can't even imagine how people did this 30 years ago. Right. I cannot wrap my head around <laughs> it. <laughs> For sure. Those are essential. All right. So if you had a free airline pass in a week with nothing else to do, where would you head next? Um, I, and if I did, let's also add the caveat, if I didn't have a toddler at home to worry about, because <laughs> that limits yeah. things too, I really, <laughs> really would love to go to Japan, um, with my brother, specifically my, my husband's like, what about me? Can I come? And I was like, I just want to go with my brother because he and I love, um, shopping, fashion and food. And I just want to go to Tokyo and just do that with my brother and just the two of us and just eat. Uh, and shop and uh, that kind of thing. So it's a little, little bit more of a departure from, from what I typically do with Road Scholar. Hey, nothing wrong with that. And you know, Japan's been on my mind a lot recently too. So maybe, who knows, maybe I'll see you over there. Yeah. Uh, our last question, what's something you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could go back and experience again with somebody you love? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I would say... Uh, so I studied abroad in Ireland and Glendalock is in the Wicklow Mountains is one of my favorite places in Ireland. And I was there with a group of friends. But then um, once I got engaged, I decided I needed to go live in Ireland again. So immediately, because I was like, I don't know if I'll ever have the chance again. So I went <laughs> back and lived there for a month in in um, Galway. And I did go back to Glendalock and I did some hiking there by myself. And I just love Glendalock so much. And I had been there with people before, but I would really love to go back with my husband and just explore with him and, and share that with him because it is just one of my favorite places in the whole world. And he's very Irish and has never been to Ireland. So definitely Ireland with my husband. Yeah, you got to make that happen. Maybe once uh, the toddler is a little bit older and can stay home for a week with friends or family or something. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, Kelsey, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kelsey as much as I did. I got to be honest with you, I'm a little bit of a nerd. And every now and then I really enjoy nerding out with people like her over cool ideas in travel. I want to make sure that you really catch some of the things that Kelsey had to say, because I think they are fascinating insights for our entire industry. 
whether you are into educational travel or not. Now, when we were talking about the trend of women traveling solo, Kelsey said 70% of our travelers are women and 30% go solo every year. She said, we have lots of solo female travelers who come with us. And at least 60% of those are married people who leave their spouses at home to come travel. And she went on to say, the number one reason is that their spouse just isn't interested in traveling. And I guess women are just a little more adventurous and willing to push themselves out of their comfort zone. Now, I wasn't surprised to hear Kelsey saying that because uh, we have seen this demographic trend in group travel for years and years. And I'll be honest, guys, I don't know exactly what it is about women that makes them a little bit more open to adventure than men. But I think this poses an opportunity if you can figure out how to take advantage of these demographic trends. Maybe you can find ways to uh, get more women on your trips. Maybe you can find ways to get more men on your trips by changing the way you do travel. Or maybe you can find some ways to really lean into the trend of women traveling without their husbands. Pack a trip full of things that uh, maybe men aren't interested in doing, but women would love to do without their husbands in tow. And you might just have a best seller there. So no matter what kind of trips you do, that's some really interesting insight to try to bring in to the way you build and sell your trips. Now, when we were talking about multi-generational travel, Kelsey said these are hands-on interactive programs with lots of activities. She said they're wonderful opportunities for grandparents to pass on their love of learning, their love of travel, and really make memories they're going to have forever. She said the grandparents do some stretching of their minds and their abilities to learn more about themselves too. Now, this is such a great idea. And of course, multi-generational travel has been around a while. This is not something new. But I love this outlook of saying, hey, this isn't just a trip. This isn't just uh, the grandparents and the grandchildren or a mixed family doing something fun together. This is really an opportunity to pass something on, pass on a love of learning, pass on a love of travel. Uh, What an amazing inheritance that is to leave to the next generation. And I also loved her point about, you know, grandparents get stretched a little bit too on these trips. It's not all just childcare and escorting and uh, paying the expenses. It's an opportunity to stretch yourself, to learn and to continue to have a rich life, even in your retirement years. And finally, when we were talking about the value of stretching yourself and getting out of that comfort zone, Kelsey said, when you're aging, Learning and putting yourself out of your comfort zone is so important to keep yourself sharp, to age healthily, and to keep yourself vital and engaged as you get older. That's what baby boomers are interested in doing. You know, I think she's absolutely right on that. I know that uh, my parents, for instance, are much more healthy and active than their parents were at the same age. And travel is just a great way to stay sharp. But you know, what's important is that you're doing that in a way that really stretches you. So we're not talking about just uh, riding around on a motor coach and looking at pretty things. We're not talking about just lying on a beach. We're not talking about just going to a restaurant or a bar. We're talking about trips that are really engaging, that include experiences that really push people beyond the kinds of things they would do at home and open their minds and their worlds to new experiences and new perspectives. I think the more we bring people to those kind of experiences, the more we're going to see that they travel with us much longer than they were able to in generations past. Great stuff there from Kelsey Perry. Well, we talked earlier in the show about a new proposal in Hawaii to charge a $50 green fee for visitors wanting to use the state's natural areas. Now, I want to revisit that topic in today's Hot Minute. That's right. The hot minute is the portion of the program where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue that impacts tourism every day. And today we're going to talk about destination fees and whether it is a good idea for places like Hawaii and other destinations to add on expense for their travelers. So let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it. It's ironic that at the same time the Biden administration is trying to crack down on hotel resort fees, 
legislators in Hawaii are considering the very thing that has raised the ire of the White House, charging visitors extra money for things that used to be free. Now, Hawaii is not the first place to consider a green fee, but the price of Hawaii's fee hits with a wallop, and it's hard for me to see the proposal as anything but a cash grab. You know, visitors to Hawaii already pay a lot in state taxes, and this new green fee would increase the vacation cost for a family of four by $200. My biggest concern, though, is what happens if this fee is successful? I'm afraid that other destinations with less fragile environments would follow suit. That would make travel more expensive and less accessible for everyone. While that might benefit state budgets, the traveling public would lose in the long run. That's the hot minute. That's the way I see things anyway. Of course, as always, you're welcome to disagree with me and we can still be friends. And hey, whether you agree or disagree, we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us with all your thoughts, questions, ideas, concerns, rebuttals, anything you want to say by emailing podcast at grouptravelleader.com. I read every email that comes into that address. I love hearing from you and you never know your thoughts or questions might be the topic of the next hot minute. And Hey, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback, would you do me a big favor? Go to your favorite podcast player. And if you haven't already subscribed to or followed the show, then hit that button so that you get the next episode of gather and go in your sleep. And while you're there, leave us a rating, give us a review. Those things are super helpful. And I am thankful to everyone who has done that so far. My thanks as well to Kelsey Perry for joining us today. On the next episode of Gather and Go, I'm going to bring you a fascinating conversation with Dan Christian, a tourism veteran and host of the Travel Trends podcast, all about travel's post-pandemic evolution. You won't want to miss that. Until then, though, remember this. At the end of the day, we are all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Tanya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 859-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of The Group Travel Leader. For more information on our podcast, magazines, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com. Hold up. 